Hello, welcome to Okawa Book Club. We're your hosts. I'm Dylan. I'm John. And we're going to be discussing the teachings of Master Ryuho Okawa. Ryuho Okawa is a world teacher, master, and CEO of Happy Science Group. All right, so today we have a new holy book, a kyoten, called The Ten Principles from El Cantare, Volume 2. Riho Okawa's first lectures on his wish to save the world. So this is early book which has been republished around the world and this covers five incredible lectures that are going to change your life. But before we get into the, the lectures themselves, let me read the preface to the newly revised second volume of the Ten Principles from El Cantare. From page 11. There's a song, How Far I've Come, and this song title expresses how I truly feel now. In 1988, Happy Science entered its second year since starting its activities, and I gave five public lectures that year. As the sequel to the five principles included in Volume 1, this book contains the remaining five principles of the series. I, the author, at the time of conducting these lectures, was 31 to 32 years old. These 10 basic lectures given in the span of two years, in 1987 and 1988, solidified the framework of the Happy Science teachings. Owing to these lectures and a few dozen publications, I gained up to 10,000 passionate believers and created Happy Science's Foundation for Progress. In contrast to my initial plan to control the membership from growing too rapidly. The following year, in 1989, I gave a public lecture to 8,500 people at Ryokoku Kokugikan Arena. And in 1990, I gave public lectures at Makukari Mese to about 10,000 to 20,000 people. The lectures in this book contain words with spiritual power, words that are youthful yet filled with my wish to save the world. For words spoken by a religious leader, these lectures are far too original and boundless. Riho Kawa, August 9, 2020. Thank you very much, Master. And in this book, it covers five chapters. Chapter one is the principle of wisdom. Chapter two is the principle of utopia. Chapter three, the principle of salvation. Chapter four, the principle of self-reflection. And chapter five, the principle of prayer. So these principles are the very core teachings of happy science. And to start out, I'd like to discuss a little bit from the principle of wisdom of chapter one. In chapter one, it kind of really discusses the wisdom that's needed. And it's a spiritual wisdom. It's not a worldly wisdom. It's a knowledge of the other world. And based on this religious awakening, we are able to make people happier in this world and the next. Something that really stood out to me was how Master Okawa said that he only reveals about 10% of what he has learned. And it says, I believe I must hold back the other 90% to confirm that it is true. As such, the more books I publish and the more lectures I give, the more study and contemplation I need to do. I take this approach because not only what we grasp through our hearts, not merely with our brains, ultimately becomes true nourishment for our souls. From page 21 to 22. So it's a profound quote, John, and I was just wondering if anything stood out to you from this chapter or that quote itself? Well, yeah, it most certainly a profound and uh, remarkable quote. So let's, let me think back to the first chapter of the book. Mm -hmm. 
I really appreciated the principle of uh, learning as an end and through the developmental stages of wisdom of prioritizing that continuity of learning. Uh, it's, I think that like when it comes to gaining wisdom or even experiencing enlightenment, anything like that, uh, people tend to often make the mistake seeing it as a, an end, like we're going to get this and then everything's going to be different. And I feel like something Master Kawa reinforces so frequently is that really it's a continuous process. We're going to be doing it throughout this lifetime. We're going to be doing it throughout many lifetimes. And I think I just really appreciated that being emphasized and being reinforced uh, because I think it's something our, the human species really needs to understand. Yeah, it's a true statement. And that kind of reminded me of what's on page 26 at the bottom. It says, in the process of acquiring wisdom, you will meet many people, hear many arguments, and encounter many problems in life, all of which will challenge your philosophy to see if it is genuine or not. When met with such a challenge, if your thoughts are no more than embellishments or accessories, they will be blown away like dust in the wind. But if the thoughts you grasped are firmly rooted, they will be unshakable. Your thoughts will be refined as you accumulate various experiences, and this refinement will make your thoughts more and more brilliant. This is the attitude you should have towards wisdom. And then it uses these poetic words. Get rid of your vanity. Remove your accessories. Become your original self. Be pure in seeking wisdom. If you explore knowledge merely out of a desire to look good in the eyes of others, it will lead you into a labyrinth. I thought that is a remarkable quote because... Among things that human beings uh, deeply study, there are a lot of superficialities, embellishments, and academic tricks that people use to gain credibility that are fake. They're not true wisdom. So this is a kind of sorting method to find the gold from the, the dust. It's a really profound way of thinking about the world. I really like that analogy. And, and I think that uh, in terms of getting rid of your vanity, removing your accessories and becoming your original self, I think like, uh, you know, when you meditate, right, like once the thoughts tend to dissipate and you, you do find this pure self, but defining that self has been, I think, something problematic for many people. And, I, and that's something I sort of explored throughout this book is the principles of what we really are in terms of a creation of God and the qualities that define what our original true self is. So yeah, I thought it was like this being kind of earlier in the book almost sort of prefaces that. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And with that said, if we go on to the second chapter, the principle of utopia, we find basically principles to reform this world and improve this world because in the heavenly world, the other world, it's already mostly like a utopia. It's very amazing over there. So we want to make this world into a heaven as well. And so there are three principles, which are kind of three steps that it takes to get to utopia. And the first principle on page 58 is establishing the age of spirituality. So before we start to improve the world, first we need to enter an age of spirituality because that basically sets us in the right foundation in order to make judgments about how to improve the world. And it even talks about God performing surgery. And if it's too late, then it will be unable to save the patient. So first we have to get ourselves ready before we go on to the next step. And then it talks about the second principle, reforming economic principles. 
So once we have the spiritual state of mind, we can actually view the economy for what it is and its pros and cons and improve the uh, heavenly aspect of the economy to make it an economy that's approved by God and heaven's will. And then finally, the third principle is establishing and mastering major principles for action. So this is the activism and the kind of political and religious reformation that will change society in its fundamental nature. And it says in that section that basically this world is the kingdom of God and we need to restore the kingdom of God through repentance of the individual or personal enlightenment and their repentance and enlightenment of society as a whole. So it takes the individual to change and society to change. We can't just change one of them. Is there anything that stood out to you from this chapter? One thing I really appreciated about this chapter was the, you know, there was this kind of theme of dualities, mm -hmm. like uh, in terms of changing the, our financial systems. It was said something along the lines of like, we have currency that's issued from the central banks and there's also a currency that's issued from God. Mm. which and so learning to integrate these because like master car was sort of kind of critical of the way capitalism presently functions in which profits are sought without any particular aim aside from just more profits so he alludes that that's essentially like a worshiping of materialism mm. and then i i appreciated that where master car states that we need to essentially transcend what Jesus taught, because Jesus taught, you know, render to Caesar what's Caesar's, render to God what's God's. And, but the limitation of that is that you can only really transform yourself. Whereas these teachings are saying you do have to transform yourself, but you also can be then be going out into the world and transforming the world. And that's how we're going to get to the utopian state. So it really is the most highly developed teaching on this matter. Yeah, that's a really good way of saying. Just for the sake of time, I think we could go deeper, but let's move on to chapter three. Sure. Chapter three, I felt like was the most mystical chapter of the book. It's the principle of salvation. And it's not necessarily just about like missionary work and saving people, but it's really a deep understanding of Buddha and God. It's an understanding of the God of the universe as well, who tries to save people on planets around the entire universe. So this talks about things like other planets, life forms, the creation of the universe, the creation of our solar system. And since we were created by God as souls, what kind of spiritual energy we need to acquire to gain enlightenment in order to save people? Because the wisdom that we have is a kind of measure of the enlightenment that we have attained. And that becomes the limit of our love. So this is such a profound chapter, and it goes on in section five to talk about God's three great inventions. So God created the world through willpower, and through his mind, his will, all things were created. Then God created time, because everything was in a static state, like a statue. It was like a world on pause. But God created time to give meaning to life. So through the flow of time, creation could express itself. And then finally, God created the direction of happiness or progress, which is the end, the goal of which we are attaining. So we know what direction to move towards, and that kind of gives the universe a beginning and an end. And so we have an ultimate progression at the end of our ideal utopian world. 
So it's a profound concept, and it will, if you read it carefully, you will feel your soul's connection to God and feel the deep vibrations within these words. Is there anything that stood out to you, John? Mm. Well, the next section of this chapter mm -hmm. is gratitude for God's inventions. Mm -hmm. And I think gratitude is so important, and it's something, I, I've probably said this before, uh, but it is something it's kind of easy to like discount and miss and it's amazing what gratitude can do for us. It can totally lift our spirits um, instantly. But I think that uh, in Buddhism, uh, in many traditions of Buddhism, there's this idea that has been often stated that the human birth or the human incarnation is an exceedingly rare thing. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily always elaborated upon so much, uh, or at least not in such a clear way as it is in this chapter. Like it really is there's almost like a thought experiment of imagining yourself in non-human forms and seeing the limitations of those things. So learning to be gracious for that and mm -hmm. to be gracious for time and uh, just for the fact that the direction of time ultimately is towards progress and happiness. Like that's, if we're not recognizing that or living in alignment with that, it just means that we're not living in alignment with God's will, essentially. Mm. So we can always readjust ourselves and know that the truth is that we are moving towards progress and happiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a true. And um, if we don't think about that, people might start going backwards. Right. You know, we need to know what direction to move towards to go forwards. So going forwards in this book, uh, we have the principle of self-reflection. So Buddha taught eight steps for self-reflection in the Eightfold Path, but uh, some people that's a little bit too complicated. So they go, they think it's a little bit difficult. So there's another teaching which is shared for the first time, which is Ramu, Threefold Path. So Ramu was a uh, ancient king who existed a long, long time ago in the uh, Pacific area, continent of Mu. And he taught a very uh, simple way that we can practice self-reflection every single day. So the first step is self-reflection on the love that you have given for others today. Reflect on whether you gave love to others. That's not the feeling of wanting. It's the feeling of wanting to give. So that's an important step. The second step is if you attune your mind to God or your guardian and guiding spirits today. So if you didn't attune your mind to the heavenly world today, it means you're gradually building up clouds and obstructions which prevent you from reaching heaven in the future. And the third teaching, or the third step, is about reflecting on what you learned today. If you learn something every day, you will grow. So he taught very strictly, do not waste a single day, do not waste an hour, do not waste a minute, do not waste a second. He strongly emphasized using every second for learning. And I thought that was a profound way to view the world. But the book goes on to the Eightfold Path later in the chapter. So is there anything you took away from this chapter on self-reflection, John? Yeah, I, I really loved uh, Ramu's uh, Threefold Path. I think it's such an accessible way to live, whether in place of or alongside the Eightfold Path, uh, even, you know, and... I really, the idea of every day attuning your mind to God or the guardian and guiding spirits that are close to God, I think that's so important. When I work with my like psychotherapy patients, 
there's this concept from dialectical behavior therapy called the wise mind. Mm -hmm. And what that is, is that you, when you're making a decision, you turn inwards to your wise mind and it's this wise voice that you hear inside of you. And that's where you go for your guidance. So now this was created in a very secular way, mm -hmm. but I think that what people are really tapping into, if they have the clarity to, is uh, in attunement to the mind of God or to their guardian and guiding spirits. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like, and it works, okay, having that, that attunement internally uh is so important just as a guiding force and we have it for a reason you know and we're not we're not in this alone yeah yeah we do and one way we can connect is through the power of prayer which is chapter five chapter five really talks about the rules of prayer what prayer really is and the meaning that prayer really has it says on page 163 that prayer is like a telephone call it is the act of connecting the lines of thought so it means your thoughts connect to heaven or a being in heaven who wants to make your thoughts come true or your true pure desires come to realization. So purity is an essential part of prayer. That is one of the most important rules is being pure in heart. So once you reach that state of purity, you will become closer to becoming one with God. And when you're ideas are one with God, God wants your wishes to come true. And you can achieve much greater things with the power of God than you could achieve by yourself. So there's some very important rules that are throughout this chapter. But I thought the most powerful thing that I read was that you can be reborn through prayer. Prayer is like the moment of death. It is also the moment of rebirth. So you're essentially cutting your life to an end and starting a new life. Every time you, you do an act of true prayer, you are saying, I've had it with who I was and I am going to become someone new. So you are putting that resolution out there and that pledge to God that you are ready to take a step to a higher level. And that's what prayer helps you essentially achieve. It's a uh, rebirth of the soul and a rebirth of your life on earth. But there's so much in this chapter. Was there something that stood out to you, John? Well, I think uh, it would be hard to follow uh, what you just discussed about the rebirth through prayer. I mean, that is, to me, the most profound element of prayer. Um, in terms of uh, the, three prevent the three principles given of uh, beauty, goodness, and love, I, I think that, you know, to be concise, it, it really just emphasizes, like, the right attitude, words, intentions, ensuring that what we're praying for is not something that we have any shame about, um, as well as our love for others and for God. And I think that where all of those things are included in our prayers, I think that that's how we can successfully undergo that rebirth. And this is something that we can experience uh, daily, I think. And I also appreciated, you know, in the last uh, page of the chapter, there was a prayer for creating utopia. Mm. And in terms of, I think it, it was a very generous way to provide uh, a benevolent example of how to properly maybe construct our prayers and fill them with the right form of intentions. Yeah, no, that's that's so true. I Just looking at the page 187 with that prayer, it's almost like it's shining with light, golden light from heaven. Yeah profound prayer. This is such a great book. We could have five episodes on this book alone, but before we move on, I'd just like to ask my partner, John, to uh, read from page 190. That is the afterword of the book. Sure. 
After word to the newly revised second volume of the Ten Principles from Alcantari. After reading the Ten Principles from Alcantari, Volume 1 and Volume 2, exactly who I am may have become clear to many. My teachings are far beyond what a human being can teach. These laws were taught 32 years ago and are still applicable today. On July 15, 1991, the celebration of Lord Alcantari's descent was held in Tokyo Dome. A young journalist from Financial Times covered this event and wrote a full-page article stating he is beyond Jesus Christ and Japan bows to a new god. 25 years later, this journalist has become the head of an American media group. He attended my English lecture in New York, where he heard the prophecy of Donald Trump becoming the new president one month prior to the election. The Ten Principles from Alcantara is already part of human history. It is my mission to reprint this book with as little editing as possible. From Rio Okawa. Wow. You can get this profound and tremendous book at bookstores such as Barnes & Noble or online on Amazon.com. You can also learn more on okawabooks.com. It was great talking to you again, John. Likewise, though. In these trying times, stay happy, healthy, and positive. <laughs>